When you look at what consumers say, and we look at the data again and again, back to the things we talked about, listen to me, communicate to me in a way that I can understand, treat me with dignity and respect. Those are the things that are at the top. On the lowest level of the scale for them is the best food ever, parking is easy, all of these things. Yet we spend all our money on the side that matters the least to patients and we call that patient experience investment and therefore we leave ourselves imbalanced instead of working at the fundamentals where a leader can model the kind of behavior they can suggest, not only just suggest, but demand that that's the way an organization operates and you're creating experience with little to no resources, except having very smart people guide that process and having the right people involved in the organization execute on that every day in every interaction. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Web. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, This is the podcast for you. Well, I am honored today that the Orsini Way has partnered with the Finley Project to bring you this episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. The Finley Project is a nonprofit organization committed to providing care for mothers who have experienced the unimaginable, the loss of an infant. It was created by their founder, Noelle Moore, whose sweet daughter Finley died in 2013. It was at that time that Noel realized that there was a large gap between leaving the hospital without your baby and the time when you get home that led her to start the Finley Project. The Finley Project is the nation's only seven-part holistic program that helps mothers after infant loss by supporting them physically and emotionally. They provide such things as mental health counseling, funeral arrangement support, grocery gift cards, professional house cleaning, professional massage therapy, and support group placement. The Finley Project has helped hundreds of women across the country, and I can tell you that I have seen personally how the Finley Project has literally saved the lives of mothers who lost their infant. If you are interested in learning more or referring a family or donating to this amazing cause, please go to thefinleyproject.org. The Finley Project believes that no family should walk out of a hospital without support. Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, and I will be your host again today. You know, before we start, one of the best decisions that I really made is to do this podcast. I really do believe that it provides a unique opportunity for healthcare professionals and business leaders to learn more about communication, about leadership, culture change, and how we can really do better in our professional and our personal lives just by understanding the human-to-human interaction. But really, one of the best things about hosting this podcast is I get to meet people and connect that I thought I otherwise would never get to meet. And I've been really fortunate, actually, to keep in touch with many of the guests that have been on this podcast. So I feel really blessed. Now, one person I've been trying to meet is our guest today. (laughs) And Jason, and I'll introduce him in a second. Jason is a very busy man. He's very approachable. He's a great guy. But boy, when I meet him, there's thousands of people around him. And so I shook his hand, but I'm sure he doesn't remember. But thanks to Diane Rogers, 
and some mutual friends. I was, if you asked me a few months ago, whether I'd be interviewing Jason right now, I probably would have said no way. But last month we did hit it off. We spoke on the phone and he's been kind enough to come on to this. Now, before I introduce Jason, I want to tell everybody out there that if you are in the healthcare industry and you're listening to this, and the majority of our audience is, I'd like you just to tell your friends about this. Please go ahead and share with your, whether they're hospital administrators, nurses, or doctors, anybody has anything to do with patients, because we're really going to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart and something that's really important, and that's the patient experience. So just pick up the phone and call your friends and tell them that you have to listen to this. Today, I have the distinct honor of speaking with Jason Wolf. Jason Wolf is a passionate champion and recognized expert on patient experience. As president of the Barrel Institute, Jason has led the growth of the organization into the leading global community of practice and thought leadership on improving the patient experience. A central leader in expanding the patient experience movement, Jason is also the founding editor of the Patient Experience Journal and serves as president of the Patient Experience Institute, which is a nonprofit committed to continuing education and professional certification. Prior to leading the Institute, Jason designed and led the organizational change service and leadership development strategies with HCA Healthcare, working with over 45 facilities on improving and changing efforts. He also conducted groundbreaking research to identify the characteristics of high-performance healthcare organizations, which I hope we will get to speak about. Jason's a sought-after speaker, provocative commentator, and respected author of numerous publications, including two books on organization development in healthcare and over 25 white papers on patient experience improvement. And Jason lives in Nashville, Tennessee. And in his spare time, I'm told he likes to watch the Nashville MLS team and uh, run to his kids' soccer. Welcome, Jason. Thanks, Dr. Rossini. Thank you, Anthony. I really appreciate the chance to be with you and really humbled to be asked to be part of this. Thank you so much. Please call me Tony. I'm just Tony okay. to everybody. So my mother calls me Anthony and I can't get her to stop. It's, but, our, uh, it's our Jersey roots. I got you. I mean, you know, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that. I want to tell your story, but you know, this was actually a question down the line, but you and I spoke and it turns out that we grew up, I checked it on Google today. We grew up about nine miles from each other. It's, yep. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so, and we'll talk about that later on, but I really want to get into patient experience. I want to get into communication, but I always usually like to just start about just letting the audience get to know you. So Mm -hmm. if you don't mind just telling us your journey, how did Jason Wolf get here? Yeah, actually, you know, mentioning your mom, I think I got to thank my mom first, right? I mean, it's no growing up in a household that was run by my mom with my brother and I and her, she instilled a real sense of purpose in me from the beginning. And this is not just because I hope she'll listen to this one day, but because it's true. (laughs) And I think that the, you know, I mean, when you are supported in believing yourself and have the privilege to have that, I will acknowledge that, and then are challenged to be your best and to know that there is greater good you can do in the world and caring for other people, you know, that inspires you to really think big. There are roots there that I have to acknowledge that are seeds for any journey like this that we're on. Yeah, and, we are where we come from. That's yeah. And, yep. and, you know, so for me, I've been fortunate, you know, I have a background in, believe it or not, in international relations, so trained in being a diplomat, but find myself in the organizational world and ultimately in healthcare. And I think like many, a kind of an interesting and winding youthful journey that really found my way into focusing on organization improvement and in particular doing that within healthcare. And as you noted within, in particular in the HCA healthcare system was my last stop on that journey. And during that time there really discovered there was huge opportunities you know, we were in the living in the core measures era and also the beginning of sort of in the United States, the CAPS 
evolution and application of that in practice. But being a student of culture and being really a student of diplomacy and life at the edges of relationships, realized how important that was. And also acknowledged in seeing not only our system, but looking at healthcare as a macro system, we were struggling with collaboration, with connection, with the sharing of ideas, with the rising of the tide for all that participate in healthcare and really was inspiration for what was to become the Barrel Institute in its form today. And that reality was that if we could create a place that wasn't trying to sell anybody anything, wasn't associated with a vendor or a product, wasn't associated with uh, one provider institution or another, but really became a safe place for people to come together, to share ideas, to support one another with purpose, and to acknowledge that the knowledge that people share is so vital and important to do that, we could create something that potentially had an opportunity to impact the way we looked at healthcare, the way we thought about what healthcare could do, and ultimately the impacts that healthcare could have. And so it was kind of a, if you build it, will they come question Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, just a little bit over 10 years ago now, to the fact that people have shown up. And this journey for me of realizing that when you can hold the space, kind of grounded to those initial seeds I was talking about around Think finding your purpose, being clear on what potential is and acknowledging the power in others, and then supporting, kindling, fostering, and bringing that together, you can accomplish great things. And, you know, in this last 10 years of now grounding the Barrel Institute with this idea and growing it into this global organization that you noted has been incredibly significant to me personally, because it's never been about me. You know that in our conversation, Mm -hmm. it's not even about the Barrel Institute, but it's about the potential that we all have to get at the essence of this work, to elevate the human experience in healthcare. And so to see these tens of thousands of people from around the world contribute knowledge, ideas, thoughts, but also compassion and shoulders at times of need, and in particular, elevating their support for one another at times of crisis like we're in right now, has been incredibly moving and overwhelming to see. And so the kind of impact that we've seen this global community of practices global network be able to have as a result of the passionate work, such as the work that you're doing, being filtered through this entire global infrastructure has been incredibly powerful and moving. And so that's the way I see my journey. It's not so much all these milestones along the way, but one driven from seeds of purpose that has really enabled me to do everything I was taught back in those days from my mom. I think that's a beautiful way of thinking about it because we all are who we come from. But patient experience is, you know, It's come a long way from being this sought kind of soft skill that, yeah, that's kind of nice. And, you know, my journey, as you know, is from physician. And I started out really being interested in communication and how doctors break bad news. Mm -hmm. And so I was always kind of into that communication. I find it really fascinating. But as time went by, it went from, yeah, yeah, that's kind of nice to, and I think the Barlow Institute has a lot to do with that. I mean, Right now, the patient experience is in the front of medicine right now. And, and what I really love about, just to put aside, what I really love about the Barrel Institute is that it is independent. You said you're not looking, trying to make money. And I've been to several of your conferences. I even spoke at one of them. And it is really kind of like a family. And I think you've done that. And when you are walking around everybody wants to hear about what you're doing and what I'm doing. And so, do you think it's a, 
a generational thing? Or why do you think that all of a sudden the patient is totally different than they were 20 years ago? Now the patient is understanding that my experience is really important and that I do deserve to be treated better. Why do you think that's changed over the last 10 years or even more? Yeah, I think it's definitely been quite an arc of evolution, I think, in the way that healthcare has operated and in the way that healthcare consumers have reacted to their engagement in healthcare. My grandfather was a pediatrician. Oh, really? Okay. He was a pediatrician in Patterson, New Jersey. I remember watching him. He would literally put on his fedora and his suit and his little (laughs) black bag and walk across the street because he literally lived across the street from his hospital. He'd spend time you know, doing his rounds. He'd meet with his residents. He'd actually stop and have lunch with his nurses. And they would come home across the street that afternoon and in the afternoon open his one room practice and see children and their family. And, you know, what I saw, you know, in watching my grandfather do that was even though as a grandfather, he was actually a little scary to me, was this compassionate guy, almost this Norman Rockwell picture of a black and white checkered waiting room with wooden paneled walls. But these toys and books where he would get down on a knee when he came out to bring the next child back and talk to the child and acknowledge the parents and walk everybody back together. And, you know, even in the moments like that, where I know the system that he was operating on is one of hierarchy, right? Do what the doctor says, go to your appointments, go and do what you're told. The potential for that connection always existed. And I think what we've found has evolved over time is the realization of the power of that as part of really the prescription for health and well-being became more and more evident that it wasn't simply the science of medicine that mattered, but the research has evolved dramatically from the aspects of care to a rapidly evolving consumer population that has access to more information is driven to make different choices. And so I think it's the kind of this inflection point of a shift in the way people realize they could deliver on medicine that expanded their own capacity that really drove them back to their purpose, right? My grandfather was a McGill graduate, raised in the Osler methods. He was taught that person-centeredness, that connection to people was important. Mm -hmm. But yet in practice, we sort of wiped that out. But I think what happened is all the purpose that drove, I'm sure you and so many others to choose the clinical world as a profession wasn't because I'm a science whiz, even though you need to be incredibly smart at that. It's because you have a bigger purpose for caring for the person in front of you. And I think we created a space for that to come out. I think the consumers asked for that to come out and they started making choices as a result of that. And so that evolution of the reality of moving beyond just the mechanisms and science of healthcare, I think was this arc of life we've been on. Now it's been inspired, yes, by things like surveys and other things in particular in the United States, like the CAP survey that made measurements of experience of a financial priority as well for organizations. But I think that when you look at what people do, it's beyond simply the fact that they are reacting to a survey. And in fact, the places that succeed at this are the ones that worry least about the survey and more about the overall experience they want to provide. But I do think it's been an evolution of how we practiced. It's been an evolution of the demands that have been placed on us by the typical healthcare consumer. And those continue to evolve at a place where we are finding this incredible opportunity for mutual partnership to drive the best outcomes overall. And I think it's been an exciting evolution to see. And for people that may not know this, and I find a lot of people don't know this, it's not a soft skill, as you said. It really affects clinical outcomes. That's Mm -hmm. really clear. It affects your net profits. I talk about in my book how it affects physician burnout. And if none of that 
gets you, then it's just the right thing to do. So (laughs) I had was really fortunate. You talk about your grandfather and I had a role model too. Of course, my parents are amazing people and they raised me amazing and I'm so indebted to them. But there was somebody in my life who was a physician. I'm the only non-cop in my uh, family. (laughs) But I was very close to Dr. Merck. Mm. And Dr. Merck was a family doctor in Newark, New Jersey. Mm. And he did everything. He delivered babies. He was a pediatrician. And Dr. Merck practiced for so long that he delivered me. And he was one of the first people I rotated through medical school with. I was in his office. And the reason why this is so important, I talk about him in my book, is Dr. Merck, when I watched him, his patients lit up when they came into his office. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Merck had a way, and you know, the more I learned about patient experience, the more I understood that why Dr. Merck was so successful. He practiced 50 years, never got sued, Jason. That's amazing. Yep. And his patients loved him so much, he could have taken off the wrong finger and they wouldn't <laughs> have sued him. Yeah. But Dr. Merck had this way of connecting with people. And we talked about burnout, why it's related to burnout. Dr. Merck loved his job so much, he practiced for 50 years because yeah. he was happy. He was relating to patients. And I really do believe that this is all about patient experience. And that gets to my next question. Mm-hmm. Patient experience is really about the ability of the provider to form a relationship mm-hmm. with their patients. And I want you to comment a little bit more about that. And, you know, there's so many different aspects of patient experience, but that's the most important thing. Or how do you describe patient experience? I know the Barrow Institute, if you want to give people that definition, but where do you think communication falls in the importance of all this? Yeah, well, I would say to answer that question first, at the top, that's an unquestionable data point, not just an idea. And I think exactly to your point, it was actually in one of the very first papers we ever wrote at the Institute, we spoke to exactly the point you raised, that when we have open, honest, transparent communication between providers, physicians, and patients and family members, we have better outcomes. But we also, to your point, see little to no legal recourse, or all of the mechanisms that get in our way of building stronger relationships and better outcomes. And in fact, it creates that positive feedback loop that you're speaking about, right? I mean, if I'm there and present as a physician, like you are for your patients, they give you that feedback. They re-energize you into what that purpose was that brought you into that cycle in the first place. And all of that comes down to this communication component that you speak about. I mean, I think when you know, our data over the years, and in particular, even just as recently as our most recent PX Pulse that we do in conjunction with Ipsos once a quarter, we reinforce that. I mean, people are saying, you know, what matters most in my experience is that my health, you know, ultimately improves, that it's safe. So safety and outcomes are up at the top, and they are paralleled by, not above or below, but paralleled by, you listen to me and communicate to me in a way that I can understand. And so mm-hmm. what a general consumer is saying that if you can show me that you're caring for me in a safe quality way and you're communicating to me and listening to me in a way that I understand, we're getting it all right. And in yes. fact, I think when you invert that and say, well, from a provider, I can almost turn this around on you and say, you know, from a provider standpoint, if you feel like you have healthy, vibrant, engaging conversations with your patients and you know you're providing them the best in outcomes, that's an enlivening outcome for you as a doc. And so- yeah we create this kind of positive outward swirl that really generates the best that healthcare can be all around that ability to communicate that does drive the best in outcomes. So I think it's not even a question of whether it's a thing that should be considered. It is essential and fundamental to experience overall. 
as the Barrel Institute would tell you in their definition, that is really, it's the continuum of the patient experience from the moment they walk into the door. And so that's why it's so important. You and I are talking about patients and doctors right now, mm-hmm. but right. it's how you're greeted by the receptionist. It's how you're greeted by the security. It's the signs in the hospital or the room. You know, in the name of the book, it's all the delivery. It's right. how you say it makes a big difference. But, you know, talk about communication. We did an informal study. We asked the mother or father in a pediatric setting, what makes you feel more comfortable? Someone walking in and saying, I am one of the doctors who's taking care of your child, one of the senior doctors, or I'm the intern responsible for your baby's care. And Jason, 60% of them said, I'd rather have the intern. Mm -hmm. And we looked at them and I said, you know what an intern is, right? They just got out of school. And the response that we got very often was, but that's my intern. Mm -hmm. She's taking responsibility for my baby. And it's all about that connection and building rapport. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think Dr. Merck did so well. And that's what I think the best doctors do. They take the time to sit down, build rapport and find commonality. And example, when you and I spoke, it didn't take us very long to find commonality within Three minutes, we yeah. know we grew up next yeah. to each other. So yeah. you're younger than I am, but communication has been an, an issue with this. But I think we're getting better at it. I think that we're starting to teach it in, in medical school a little bit. But I want to move on to difficult conversations with hospital mm-hmm. administrations and leaders. I think there was a study, I believe it was in Burrell, that said that 64% of hospital executive leaders named patient experiences in the top three of priorities for the year. And that was back, I think, in 2011, I believe. And yet, I speak to patient experience managers all over the country, and I know you do a lot more, who ask me questions, ask for help, and say, I'm on an island here, Tony. They give me no budget. (laughs) You know, it's a 300-bed hospital, and I'm told, just go around and fix the patient experience. Why do you think executives keep putting it in a top priority, but still haven't put their money where their mouth is in many cases. And how should that conversation go with them? It's a great question. And you know, I think it almost comes back to your mention of the definition of patient experience itself. You know, So as we define patient experience as the sum of all interactions shaped by an organization's culture that influence patient perceptions across the continuum of care. So every touch point, and it is even well beyond anyone ever enters any clinical setting to well after they leave, that's part of the experience they have. It's the stories they tell. It's the lasting impact of those efforts. And so if you think that every interaction, every touch point makes a difference in the experience and ultimately the story that people will tell about your institution and that it is grounded in and the evidence continues to prove it's grounded in the kind of organization you build, the kind of organization you say you will be, the behaviors you espouse and require of people that are part of that organization the stories that you tell about yourself in your own communities is an interesting disconnect. And I think here's where, at least in my observation, it happens. I don't think anyone out there from a leadership standpoint would tell you that the experience they provide people in their care isn't important. I think if they say that isn't true, then they're definitively in either the wrong business or got to have their priorities (laughs) upside down. The challenge with it is that we have operated, at least from my perspective, healthcare so much as sort of tactical operationalizing of so many buckets that we have made for some or some have chosen to make patient experience or experience overall a thing to do. And when it becomes a thing to do, you have to prioritize it among other things to do. You have to budget it against other things to do. 
And here's the reality. Whether you have a the most beautiful patient experience strategy in the world or none at all, the next person that engages in your organization, like I said, whether it's on the streets talking to a friend at Walmart or they're sitting in the discharge area waiting for their instructions, they're having an experience. And whether we plan for it or not, they're having an experience. That experience builds the stories that they will tell and those stories will be told. So you can either choose to have it be part of the strategic framework of how you operate your organization and then support that in a way that matters or you leave it all to risk. And here's where I think we have a huge opportunity to stop seeing patients' experience as a thing to do. It is who organizations are. The experience that organizations provide reflect everything about all they do, clinically, operationally, financially, priority-wise, strategically. Get every Lee word in there, right? And it's part of what an organization espouses to do. It's the disconnect with making it a thing that we have to put on the list that it then gets deprioritized or underfunded or those kind of things. Yes, there are tactics and tools and resources that we need to invest in to ensure even greater levels of experience excellence, but it doesn't require us to do huge amount of things. When you look at what consumers say, and we look at the data again and again, back to the things we talked about, listen to me, communicate to me in a way that I can understand, treat me with dignity and respect. Those are the things that are at the top. On the lowest level of the scale for them is the best food ever, parking is easy, all of these things. Yet we spend all our money on the side that matters the least to patients and we call that patient experience investment and therefore we leave ourselves imbalanced instead of working at the fundamentals where a leader can model the kind of behavior they can suggest, not only just suggest, but demand that's the way an organization operates and you're creating experience with little to no resources except having very smart people guide that process and having the right people involved in the organization execute on that every day in every interaction. So to bring this all back to the sum of all interactions shaped by an organization's culture, if we can get that part right, this doesn't have to be an issue of prioritization or missing. It should be a fundamental fabric of any organization if they're looking to drive the outcomes that matter. Absolutely. I just spoke to someone last week who's had a patient experience at a 200-bed hospital, and she said to me, I said, well, what kind of resources do you have? And she said, it's just me. Mm-hmm. And the CEO is on board. Yep. And I have her support. But every time I try to do some kind of training for the nurses or, or work with them and talk to them about communication skills, I got an HR guy who's not so convinced that this is how we want to spend our resources. And so she's very frustrated. I get this all the time. But I don't know what to say to her. What would you say to her how we can approach that? Because I feel helpless to help her. It has to come back to me. The conversations that have worked have been the places that have not, that you you have to be very clear that it's just not another thing to do. That if you work from the end back in, we want our patients to feel cared for, to be heard, to get the best outcomes. In order to do that, we need to provide an experience that enables all of those things to happen. And we have to ensure that our people in our organization have the resources necessary to enable that to happen at every moment in every interaction. And if we can make that argument and build backwards from there, it's not just a we're going to go do patient experience training. But we are actually building the fundamental fibers of the kind of institution, kind of organization, kind of care providers we want to be for everybody in this organization. Because you never know where that experience can go right or wrong, right? As you said, it could be the person changing out the garbage. It could be the person parking. It could be the person literally wearing your badge in the supermarket that you run into that's rude to you, right? Mm -hmm. So all of those moments matter. And so providing the core skills to ensure that those moments matter 
and they matter well in each encounter is so significant. So that's the way I would approach it. And usually the advice I give people, you can't approach it as just a, okay, it's a thing in my strategy that I need to do, but it's really driven towards our broader organizational intent. Absolutely. Where the Arsini way has been most successful, it's, I think the reason why when we do a program on communication, it, the cultural change is almost permanent. Yes. Because what I try to do is explain to them, well, we give them really cool communication techniques on how to build rapport, but in the end, they go home happier with their job, Mm -hmm. which we have business leaders on this podcast all the time and employee engagement is so important. Yes. And in the hospital, your nurses and your doctors are your employees. And so they've left meaningful relationships with their patients, even if they just met them for four or five minutes Mm -hmm. and everybody loves their job. They go home. And it's infectious, right? It's just, it's infectious, but we're still struggling. We're getting better. I'll tell you a quick story. We were going to do a, a communication training program in a hospital. I won't tell you where it is, but I get a call right before we're ready to do it. And so we have to put it on hold. And I said, why? And they said, well, one of the nurses, she put a complaint in with the union hmm. <laughs> that she didn't want to be forced to take Dr. Orsini's workshop. And her quote was, she said it wasn't in her job description to be nice. Mm. And so we're fighting this. But overall, what's so amazing is that when people start to understand that it's not only benefiting the patient, it's benefiting your hospital, it's benefiting you, you're going to go home happier. And it's not that hard, right, Jason? It's, Mm -hmm. It's not that hard. Right. Well, the argument is, right, it is in your job description to provide the best outcomes for everyone that walks in this institution. And so, therefore, this helps you do that. I mean, Excellent. and that's, I think, the point that we have to continue to reinforce, right? That, you know, the you know, if anything that people take away from these kind of conversations I have is that if we continue to think of experience or patient experience as a phrase, as a thing to do, we're going to always miss because it's going to be something that we can prioritize and then something we can also draw the line through. Until we realize that we have to make it fundamentally part of what we want healthcare to be and then invest in the right resources to do that, we're not going to necessarily be there. And our patients and our families, the general consumer is saying that's exactly where they want us to be. And so until we do what we need to do to match that disconnect, then you know we're going to consistently be at risk in healthcare of not meeting the ultimate needs of our patients and families. And the patient experience, people need to be involved with everything, including how you design the office. You know, I was at a hospital the other day where the, the new offices literally had the computer in order for the physician to look a lab value up. She literally had to turn her back right. to the patient. And so we need to be there from the ground up and say, let's imagine you're the patient. I think we got a long way to go, but I think thanks to the Barrel Institute, I've been so excited. This turns me on. I love this <laughs> stuff. I think it's because it's so nice when you leave work and you're happy. Yeah. I just have to figure out the best way to have the conversation. And I'm sure you do this all the time with that CEO saying, you don't need a bigger TV. Let's invest (laughs) in a little training for your, and let's talk about patient experience. Because in the end, like you listed what was so important, TVs didn't even come up. It's not, it doesn't matter how big the TV is. And the lowest number thing on of our rankings this in this last study, and it was even in 2018, was a healthcare facility that provides amenities. It's extremely important to less than 10% of the U.S. consumer base. Less than 10%, extremely important. It's not even very extremely important to just 20% of people. So one out of five people, that's it, that your amenities matter to. The other four looking to you for the things that really matter to them. That is the point in all of this, right? I think, you know, we have the evidence, we have the practice, and we have the purpose all together in a way that should drive people in the right direction. 
And there's so many resources out there for hospital administrators who want to improve this through the Barrel Institute. And you have so many training programs for patient experience people that I really do believe this is a ripple effect. And I think that we can kind of get away from that. Let's just make the waiting room prettier and everybody will be happy. And I think that, you know, well, back when I'm sure when you started, there were a lot of people who were treating the hospitals like hotels. Mm. Let's make the lobby nice. And in a hotel, a big TV is probably much more important than it is in a hospital because what's important in a hospital is that I relate and form a relationship with the doctors and nurses. And so I think we've come a long way. Yeah. I want to ask you before we leave about two more questions. Yeah. You can't get through an interview right now without talking about COVID. Right. And I know that I was doing a lot of speaking about patient engagement, patient experience, and then COVID came and everybody, and I don't blame anybody, but every hospital administrator was running around with their hair on fire and all of a sudden patient experience was pushed way down and employee engagement was pushed way down. But in some ways, it's really even more important. So how did COVID affect us in the last seven months or eight months? You know, there's so many layers to that question. And then, you Mm -hmm. know, clearly it's, you know, in general made healthcare consumers more cautious. I mean, I think, you know, again, back to our PX polls and watching the data, less people were participating in direct care, first of all. You know, at the same time, it reinforced and really heightened the importance of the relationships we build with people. Because, you know, in the majority of cases out there, and still to this day, if not that they came back and are now going there again because of the surge in cases so many places around the world, is that the only relationship that our patients have in a lot of our facilities right now is the staff around them. Their family member isn't with them. Their loved ones or care partners can't be at the bedside necessarily. Great point. And this level of strain, I mean, the the weight that puts on our care teams, the delivery side of our care teams is so significant. I say that only because I see care teams as involving patients and families as well. But I think that the reality is that we've had to really fine tune and hone the ways in which we build that connection and even the most simplest of ways to be there for someone, to listen when we can. Healthcare has done more in innovation, I think, in the last six months where they said, oh, it's going to take us another year and a half to implement tablets in our hospital to do it in three weeks, right? All of a sudden, magically, we found budget and the capacity to implement hundreds of tablets in places to give people access to information or communication with their loved ones. It showed us that we can be agile in the moment when we need to. It probably helped to see we could be agile in any moment, not just in moments of crisis. It elevated the realities that we have to build stronger relationships with our patients and family members and find stronger ways, in fact, to connect with and engage family members and care partners because their absence is clearly felt. And I believe their absence is actually having an impact on safety and outcomes overall. I would wager, and I've had other folks say this to me, that they believe people have not made it because their loved one couldn't be there with them or that they didn't have the information they needed to care best for those patients because someone wasn't there to help inform them. So it has shown us what is possible in a moment of dire need. And at the same time, it has made us stronger in the face of what I can only say, and I'm sure you're experiencing it. I don't have to walk into a hospital every day anymore. The highest level of exhaustion I have seen in a healthcare workforce ever, because you're not only just carrying the clinical burden, you're carrying the emotional burden of having to do everything we just talked about. So in all of that, and all of that chaos, I guess it's the optimist in me. I see the reality is that everything we just spent all of our time talking about 
as important have only been elevated as critical to the overall outcomes that we provide in healthcare. We've had to fine tune and sharpen our focus, but I don't think it's meant we've diminished a focus on experience unless people see it as a thing to do, like we talked about before. Mm-hmm. And we've done a lot of work to try to care for our employees, but we were acknowledged as rest. You know, we've set up food banks and we've set up respite rooms and all of the things that we've done that, you know, probably a care provider team actually would have liked all along the way to care for them in their busy lives. So we've discovered things. And so I'm going to be the optimist in this and say, we've reinforced the important things. We've established practices that shouldn't go away as a result of this crisis, eventually, hopefully receding. It also really elevates the importance of why this focus is so essential. And it's going to be challenging. I mean, we're in our, what do they say? The four darkest months in particular here in the United States, right? We're going to have to rely on each other in a lot more and significant ways than we have. So all the principles that you and I believe in, all the things that we've talked about over the last 10 years on our journey at the Braille Institute are essential and central to a conversation of literally survival at this moment. And I think we have to realize that and not just throw it out because right now we're just caught in a churn of chaos. So to emphasize and follow up on what you said before is a patient experience shouldn't be a thing. It should just be. Yes. And what I've seen during COVID is amazing, beautiful, compassionate emotions and things that I have a personal friend who mother died in the hospital of COVID and he couldn't visit. And so I'm seeing this around the hospital where the nurse or the doctor is, you know, got the N95 mask on covered from head to toe, Mm -hmm. but is holding the iPad so that the son or daughter can say goodbye. I easily get choked up, so I'm getting choked up right now. But how beautiful that is. And when I see that, I go, there's the patient experience right there. You didn't even know you were doing it. It was, you know, I do this thing in the, I talk about this book about being the friend in the business. Yes. You know, you want a friend in the business. And when I look at those beautiful moments, and healthcare people are really, I still believe, are heroes Mm -hmm. who get caught up in tasks sometimes. But let's say and look at that. You look at that beautiful thing. And, you know, let me tell you something. Those N95 masks are not easy to breathe through. Right. And they're sitting there with those patients for hours and holding the iPad so grandma can say goodbye. And I just look at that and I'm really proud to do what I do and say, nobody's saying I'm doing this because I'm improving the patient experience. It just is. And I love that when we stop thinking about it as a thing, it'll just happen. I love that. So It's 100%. It takes me back to that image of my grandfather who was this tough is a nail physician getting down on his knee and saying hello to that child that was scared because they had to go to the doctor and instantaneously easing his pain because I was willing to be, be there, not as Dr. Wolf, but simply as this gentleman who cares about you as who you are. And that's what we're doing right now in this moment. That is the, you know, if we're looking for that glimmer of hope, that moment now is that humanity that's so essential to medicine, that's so essential to healthcare is so prevalent and it's exhausting, but it's there. And I think that at the end of this, when we look back, that will be the proudest moment that healthcare was able to contribute that not only the, you know, clearly the clinical outcomes and all that we will do for people, but the fact that we, whether someone made it or not, brought such dignity and compassion, connection and communication in a way that literally impacted people's lives and will have a ripple effect, like you said earlier, for years to come. And those healthcare workers left exhausted, yep. as you said, but they left with a sense of pride that they did something that's, as I say, consistent with their core beliefs and yep. values, yep. as opposed to just seeing 25 patients because someone told you needed to. Right. It adds purpose. When we add purpose to 
medicine mm-hmm. and we add relationships, the patient experience just follows. And so, I mean, thanks to you and the Barrel Institute, we're snowballing here. What do you think? We're trying. I mean, I think, you know, I, like I said from the beginning, it's never going to be about me or the Institute so much as it is the contribution of so many to the conversation. And if we can ensure exactly to your point, that conversation snowballs, that we create, you know, not just small, but significant ripples around the world and what really matters, then we're going to end up with the best outcomes we can and really raising this tide in a way that hopefully will have profound and lasting impact. And that's what we're all in this for, I think, at the end of the day. So, And I know you say it's not about you, but you are the one who's bringing this and, and helping Beryl really be what it is. I mean, what's the average number of people out of the conference? Last time I was at the conference, it's a huge conference. Yeah, a thousand plus people at the conference. You know, we've got, you know, close to 60,000 people around the world that are participating. I mean, just this week alone, we did our first webinar in Portuguese for the folks in Brazil. I mean, <laughs> you should have heard me trying to speak Portuguese. And, you know, we're going to do a session here in just a couple hours for folks in Asia and Australia. I mean, it, this is a universal, or let me say global. I don't know if people on other planets are doing this yet. But I mean, it, it is a global conversation that really matters. And, you know, to be able to see so many committed people from so many walks of life, from all segments of healthcare, like you said, it's not just hospitals, it's long-term care, home health hospice, it's in ambulatory settings, it's in EMT. I mean, it's just the places that you see people committed to the human connection in healthcare, it's boundless. And our capacity to impact that is as well. Well, I promise my audience every week that they'll be inspired. And if you aren't inspired by this episode, then I don't know what to tell you because I'm inspired and this is you know, what I love, but it really does lift up my heart and it makes me feel really optimistic about healthcare. We talk about money and funds and whether we're, what kind of medicine we're going to have, whether it's going to be socialized or private. But in the end, it comes down to that human-to-human interaction. And no matter what we do, that's going to have to be there. And I think that we're getting there. So, Jason, this has been awesome. Yeah, well, I really appreciate it. You know, I learned so much from you. And the Barrel Institute Conference is coming up, but that'll be virtual, right? Yeah, Elevate PX now is our new name. So it's going to be Elevate. a global event, bringing people together from all of the continents in conversation and elevating the patient experience. So we're really excited about that. And they can go on the barrelinstitute.com. Is that the uh, yeah, web? Barrel, barrelinstitute.org, the, with the, barrelinstitute.org. And you can find information on that as well as all of our resources. As, as you talked about, you know, pretty much half of what we do is open to the world. Our journal is open access. We really want this information in people's hands to make a difference. And that's our primary purpose. That's the right thing to do. And I will put for everybody listening in their car, I will write all that down and put it in the show notes. So please don't pull over and, and write it down. We want you to be safe. Jason, thanks again so much. This has been awesome. And I really appreciate taking the time of your busy schedule. I hope that we'll be speaking many times, just like I'm doing with my other guests. So. Yes, of course we will. And I just am, again, humbled, honored to be able to talk to you, your listeners, and, and really appreciate the invitation. So thanks for all you do. Thanks, Jason. If you like this podcast, please go ahead and hit subscribe. Please tell your uh, friends about this. If you want to find more about the Orsini Way, you can go to theorsiniway.com and you can also contact me through that website. Thanks again, Jason. Awesome. Thanks. Well, before we leave, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. And I want to thank the Finley Project for being such an amazing organization. Please, everyone who's listening to this episode, go ahead, visit thefinleyproject.org, see the amazing things they're doing. I've seen this organization literally saved the lives of mothers who lost infants. So to find out more, go to thefinleyproject.org. Thank you. And I will see you again on Tuesday.
If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com.